Father, we pray that you would cast out your spirit now upon us, that that prayer we just sung might be fulfilled. We need your grace to surrender all to you. You who are merciful beyond understanding. You who have steadfast love at the heart of your being. Be merciful to us. Open our ears to hear you speak. Open our eyes to see your glory. Transform us into your image for the glory of your name. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Please be seated. So what are we to do? How do you respond when life rises up and slaps you in the face? How do you respond when the circumstances of your life not only shake you up, but undermine your ability to trust in the goodness of God? What do you do when life happens? That's uh, the question that I found myself asking as I reflected on these readings that we just had this morning during the week. Again, just think about uh, some of them. Uh, The epistle to the Hebrews. The author addresses a community uh, who is gearing up for a second, not first, second wave of persecution. And the difficulty is they didn't do very well during the first one. They did not learn yet what they needed to learn from going through that first wave of persecution. And now they're presented with another. What will they do? How will they respond? Or think about David in the psalm from this morning, Psalm 13, uh, most likely near the beginning of his life as a young man, perhaps simply one anointed yet by God, and crying out in yet another circumstance where he is surrounded by his enemies and at risk. And the difficulty with this particular circumstance, which happened over and over and over again in his life, is that God is not simply silent, he is absent. How long, O Lord, will you not be present to me? How long will you remain silent in my circumstances? There's David. Or how about the prophet Isaiah? As he addresses uh, a people who are about to go into exile about to be utterly defeated by the Babylonians and will be exiled out of the country. And he has this lovely dialogue between God and his people explaining why it is happening. Life is about to happen to them. How should they respond? Three different texts, three 
similar kinds of circumstances, all leading to the question, how would we respond if we were in their shoes? How do we respond as we are in our shoes? Well, it seems to me that if you're looking for uh, how to pray in that situation, I would encourage you to go to Psalm 13. It's a great psalm. Uh, and again, it gives you a template for how you are to pray when life happens. And I commend it. Uh, if you're looking for some pragmatic advice and some encouragement challenge to get on with it, I would turn to the epistles of the Hebrews, because that's exactly what the author gives to this people as they prepare for that next wave. But if you're looking to understand why these things happen, and having God's perspective on these things as they happen, then I would encourage you to turn to Isaiah 59. In fact, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 59, because that's where we want to begin this day. We need uh, to read the entire uh, chapter, because again, it's, we only read half of it. That was a long passage, but we only read half of it. And again, simply remember uh, the thrust and the context of this, this portion of the prophecy. Um, God is about to enact judgment on his people. He is about to send them into exile. And the prophet imagines a dialogue between God and his people as they endure this exile. Look where it starts, verse 1. It says, uh, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. The prophet has God repeat back to the people what they are saying about him. In the midst of their defeat by the Babylonians, they're saying, well, God's hand was too short. He didn't have what it took to defeat our enemies. Uh, or his ear was too dull. He didn't care enough to listen as we cried out. That's what happens when you are shaken by your circumstances. You begin to doubt either the power of God or the goodness of God. Either God is not able to do what needs to be done, or he doesn't really care about doing what he needs to be done. Right? And that's ever what happens when we find ourselves in dire circumstances. We are shaken. And what shakes us is not simply the events, but the, our ability to trust in the power or the goodness of God. When we respond to difficulties by saying, why? Is God allowing this to happen to me? We are doubting the goodness of God to us in that circumstance. And yet that's what springs to mind when we encounter difficulties. Why? Why this? Why me? Why aren't you good enough to me? God says, no, it's not that, folks. And he goes on to say, what is the real reason? He says, no, but it's your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. The prophet says, Israel, Judah, 
You are going into exile because of your own sinfulness. God has warned you, and now God is fulfilling what he spoke to you. Now, we need to be cautious here, and I really do want to be cautious here. Uh, Israel is being told that their sins are directly related to their circumstance. But the scriptures never insist that every single bad thing that happens to us is directly related to something that we have done. Right? Get that into your head. Scriptures never say that there's always and inevitably a correlation between one sin and an event that happens. Think about the blind man in John chapter 9. You might want to go and read that this afternoon. Jesus goes out of his way to tell his disciples that neither the blind man himself is to blame for his blindness nor his parents, right? Not every dire circumstances is because of something we have directly done. Not necessarily. But sin is responsible for that blindness. Sin is responsible for the presence of evil within God's good creation. That's what the scriptures teach us. The ground upon which we walk has been cursed. Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, they unleashed into God's good creation evil itself. And evil has now corrupted all that is, has indeed enslaved those who do sin, and has usurped the rule of God over his good creation. Evil is the enemy, but that enemy has come into our midst through human sin. That's the story of the scripture. And so inevitably, behind all of this, every time we encounter some difficulty in life, it is because, generically speaking, of human sin. We have unleashed evil into God's good creation, and we now suffer because of it. I think if we just reflected on that, we would probably say, it is true. It's true. The prophet, I think, does that in verses 4 through 8. He totally takes back uh, and takes a step back and looks at his own people uh, and looks at them from an outsider's perspective. Notice the terms. He goes from the second person to the third person. He goes this. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave spider's webs. And he goes on and on. Their works are works of iniquity. And deeds of violence are in their hands. He is looking at his own people and saying, man... We are contributing to all of this. We are participating in all this. Evil has taken root within our very life. It has seeped into our institutions. It has seeped into our ethos, into the air we breathe. It is in the customs of how we treat one another. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. He looks and says, it has happened. Evil has indeed seeped into the very life of the people of God in 
the place of God. Everyone is a spider spinning his own web for his own purposes, and it is not good. We, therefore, suffer from these things. Uh, It's interesting, he returns to the second person, the first person, in verses 9 to 11. He says, therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We growl like bears, like animals. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far, far from us. Evil seeps into the very life of a people. And then that people suffer from that seepage. It happened to Judah. It happens to generation and generation, society after society, in a fallen world world. It's what happens when evil is unleashed into God's good creation. And all of this leads to a confession of sin. Verses 12 and 13. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, O Lord. Our sins testify against us For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. So the prophet says, let's look again at what the scriptures teach us about what has happened to us. We know we suffer from it, and guess what? We are somewhat at least responsible for it. And we need to confess that. But he comes back in verse 14 to a statement about their reality, even having confessed their sins. He says this, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That's a devastating analysis of Judah's society. It's a devastating analysis of most other human societies, our own included. When evil becomes so rampant that if anyone wants to do the right thing, he becomes a prey because it is no longer able. Devastation. And that is the prophet's analysis of our predicament in the present moment. We have allowed evil into God's good creation, and now we suffer from it and with it. It's devastating but is not yet hopeless. The prophet, even as he speaks a word of judgment upon his people, now speaks a word of hope, which is remarkable. 
Next line from that, verse 14, he goes this, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. See, the God is now pictured as the the observer of all that's going on. The Lord saw it, he sees it, and he is not pleased with it. And therein lies our hope. Those are gospel words, glorious words. The Lord not only saw it, but he was seeing this. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. God is looking for his steward. He is looking for the one he created in his image to do what he wanted done within his creation. And there is no Adam. There is no one able to stand up to do what needs to be done to fulfill the human vocation. There is no one to intercede like Abraham, to intercede like Moses, to intercede like David. There is no one who can fulfill the kingly, priestly vocation of humanity. That displeased him. And God not only saw it, but now he does something about it. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And he came having dressed for battle to do battle on behalf of his people and on behalf of his creation. There is the hope for creation. There is the hope for the corrupted steward of God, that the creator himself, having seen that there was no one who could do it, comes and does it himself, comes to rescue his people while defeating his enemy and doing it at one and the same time. And all of that coalescing in that great promise of verse 20, and a, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. That's the promise. God promises to one day return himself to Zion. God promises one day to come himself to defeat his enemies and to redeem his people in order to restore his steward over and within his creation. That is the hope that is given to us. That is the promise that God makes to us within this truer understanding of our dire circumstance. Which leads me now to our gospel text. Mark chapter 10, 46 to 52. 
want you just to look at the context of that text, that great story about blind Bartimaeus. And to note this, it is the very last story before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The very last story before the Redeemer returns to Zion. And that's why these texts are brought together today. God fulfills his promise through the cross of Jesus Christ. The Redeemer returns to Zion to defeat his enemy while redeeming his people, fulfilling the promise given by the prophets. Hallelujah. God has done what he promised to do. That's the hope of that gospel text. He has fulfilled what he promised through Isaiah. A redeemer has returned to Zion. And those who turn from their transgressions will be saved. Well, what are we to do with all of this? That's a lot to take in. Let me suggest this. I'm going to put it in pretty bald terms. The next time life rises up to slap you in the face, and it will rise up, we live in a fallen globe. We live with the ground being cursed around us. It will happen. But when it does, if you can fight the urge to ask the question, why is this happening to me? And find the wisdom and the courage to ask another in its place. Ask this. Has God done what he promised to do? Has the Redeemer truly returned past tense to Zion? Has he defeated his enemies while redeeming his people? Is this true? In the midst of your difficulty, focus on that question. Get settled in your soul on that question. Has it been done? And if you find yourself saying, yes, I believe it has, then trust that he will work out your circumstance as well. That's the question. Not why is this happening to me? It's happening because evil is rampant in God's good creation. It will happen over and over again. But the thing that will establish us in the presence of our God is this question. Has God done what he said he would do? Has God done what was needed to be done so that this evil will not overwhelm me? Get settled with that question and then cry out to that Redeemer, Son of David, have mercy upon me.
means do what blind Bartimaeus did. But you who have seen that he has returned, now cry out to him to deal with you in your circumstance. That's how we are to deal with life as it happens. May God give us ears to hear and wills to obey. Amen.